I'm not sure if I get more excited about <clears throat> Louis's video announcement or Pauline reading scripture. It's neck and neck. Well, grace and peace to you in the name of the God who spoke creation into being. You can turn right now, if, if you like, to Matthew 5, because we'll be taking a look at verses 1 through 12 together. You can do that in the few Bibles, uh, electronically, through all sort of Apple creations or whatever you like. This is the fifth Sunday in January, and anytime we have five Sundays in one month, we like to celebrate the many generations of our church by keeping children from kindergarten on up in the service with us. There may or may not be some here this morning in this service. There's usually a lot more in the second, but I think it's a beautiful thing to worship God together and, and do so as we watch generational divides vanish, as we all come before the Lord Almighty together as His weak and needy children. So uh, in the case that it is a little noisier this morning, that's okay. Um, after all, I think Jesus had strong words for those who tried to keep little children away from Him. Amen? Amen. Speaking of kids, this is a picture of our daughter Evelyn. She is approaching the age of three. If uh, Pastor Lou can show videos of baby Silas, I get to do this. Which has nothing to do with the sermon, I just wanted to... That's her. No, I'm... <laughs> Praise the Lord, she looks like her mother. Um, so, Evelyn is approaching three, and she is learning the basics of life here on earth. Right? What sound does an elephant make? What sound does a donkey make? That's as political as I'm going to get this morning. Uh, cars go really fast. She's learning that. Trees are pretty. Uh, anytime there's music, dance. Always dance. We're working on uh, relationships. She's got mommy, daddy, brother, sister down. We're working on grandmothers, and that's a little tricky because we're going with Mimi and Nana. And we explain that daddy's mommy is Mimi and mommy's mommy is Nana. And we need to explain that better because she's having a tough time. This is a picture of her learning about cell phones. And I fear for the future. When, uh, when Evelyn learns something new and has an aha moment about the world, she has this phrase, and she's been saying it for a long time, like I would say years, and I think that's actually accurate. As soon as she started to be able to speak, she, she slipped into this phrase, and the phrase is, when she learns something, she'll have this moment, she'll say, oh, okay. Right? Like, oh, you're my daddy, kind of thing. You know, oh, okay. And I love it. And the text we have before us this morning is a passage that challenges many of our assumptions concerning the basics of life. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So as we approach our text this morning, may we do so as little children longing to learn more about this world our Lord has created. And when we learn something new, we simply say, oh, okay. So let's pray. Father, we come before you as your children. We trust that you are our good, good Father. Guide us by your Spirit this morning as we study your Word. 
which reveals who you are, who we are, and how we are called to live in response to your truth. We thank you, Jesus, for how you embody truth and invite us to do the same. Amen. As a church, we are exploring some of the promises God offers us through Scripture. The bulk of our focus has been on the book of Psalms, but today we are going to be looking at Matthew 5, 1 through 12, commonly known as the Beatitudes. Before diving into the text, exploring some context will help unpack the text. Earlier, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. He is then immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. He returns from the wilderness, begins his ministry, and proclaims, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He then begins inviting disciples to follow him. As he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people, his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him sick people, and he cured them. So understandably, his fame grows as he heals those in need of healing. So let's read, and you can follow along, starting with verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. A few things to note. Up until this point, Matthew does not record any teaching of Jesus' ministry. In some ways, and bear with me, we can view this as Jesus' inaugural address. This is describing what his ministry will be like and what the kingdom of God is like. Secondly, there are crowds of people. Now, as this is likened to his inaugural address, we do not have an accurate count on the exact numbers that were there. The text doesn't go there for us. We also know that his disciples came to him. So there's a mix of followers of, of Jesus and, and people who are interested in learning more. And perhaps as we gather this morning, we have a similar mix. And I'm glad both are here. Third, Jesus goes up the mountain. And this is important. Just as Moses went up the mountain to receive the law, so Jesus ascends a mountain to give his interpretation of the law. There is significance in the fact that Jesus delivers this sermon on a mountain. Jesus is both continuing and reshaping the understanding of what it means to walk in step with God as God's people. And now if we are truly approaching this text as children who are ready to learn some of the basics about how the world really is, the reading of this text could be a profound moment in our lives. Perhaps we meant it when we sang earlier, Tune my heart, tune my heart to sing my grace. God's Spirit may change everything you thought you knew about life this morning. And in times like this, I think children's books are helpful. This is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. C.S. stands for Clive Staples. So if you don't know anything else from this morning, you know that. Before we go to the next slide, uh, I want to ask if there are any kids in here uh, that you have full opportunity to yell out in the middle of church. So kids, fifth grade and younger, if anyone's in here, feel free to get a nudge from your parents. You get to yell out and answer in a minute. I'm going to ask a question, and I want you to yell the answer as soon as you know it. 
And if there aren't any kids that young in here, um, middle school or above, you guys can yell it out too. So the next, the, the question is this, if we go to the next slide. What is pictured here? Close. Let's, a lion. Right. There we go. You guys, you guys are jumping ahead, man. We get a bunch of church people here. That's Aslan. So years ago, I got to go on a safari in Africa and look at lions and elephants and giraffes and warthogs. And warthogs run funny. It's really funny to watch. Um, before we drove out of our safe hotel area, our safari guides would always tell us, no matter what happens, do not ever, ever get out of the Jeep. And we drive around and get right next to lions and stuff. And at that moment, I remember what they say, no matter what happens, do not ever get out of the Jeep. So I stayed in the Jeep because lions are scary. And then one day we parked by a forest that ran along a big river. Our Jeep parked and our guide said, okay, we can get out now. And I was like, is, that, is this a trick? Are you testing us? Like, I'm staying in. And he said, no, no, we, we can get out. And so we walked into the forest and there was an opening in the trees where they had this big, huge breakfast banquet waiting for us and we got to eat amazing food right on a river where there are crocodiles and hippopotamuses or hippopotami. Both are acceptable. I looked it up. And we were somehow safe. I don't know how, but we were. And this story is a story about a lion, but a different kind of lion. This lion, or Aslan, thank you choir, represents Jesus in this book. And in this scene, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who can talk, are explaining to some children who Aslan is. And they start by reciting a rhyme about Aslan. So let's read. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, he shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? Susan asked. Why, daughter of Eve, that's why I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods, and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. Great line. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about faith? Of course he isn't safe. He's good. He's the king. See, our guides on the safari were kind of like Aslan. They told us to get out of the car, and even though I knew it wasn't totally safe to do it, I trusted them. I knew they would not hurt us. So as we read the following text, may we read it with a holy fear 
that God, who is not safe, but is good, will teach us new things this morning. So let's read it again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I think before continuing, it's important to avoid something that I do a lot. I can often read scripture passages like this and read them with ancient phrasing and language, and it it takes conscious effort to recover meaning that has any kind of relevance in my life. We can read blessed over and over, and the meaning of the passage can disappear behind ancient, almost Shakespearean-sounding language. So the term blessed here is the word makarioi, which is describing persons characterized by transcendent happiness or religious joy. They are blessed and happy. The question before we continue is this. What do you think of when you think of happiness? And I want you to really think about that right now. Think of a scenario. What's a happy moment for you? What's, what's the context? For me, when I immediately think of something... This is what I think of. I think of Carmel Beach sunsets. And I think of, uh, well, I used to think of bonfires. But um, I think of friends and family and food and, and uh, getting to surf and just enjoying that. But for you, in your, your moment of happiness, your situation, where are you? What do you see? Do you see beaches, mountains, restaurants, cartoons? loved ones. What do you hear? Do you hear laughter? Singing? Music? Music what kind? Is it Bach? Beethoven? Beyonce? The Beatles? Bee Gees? Beach Boys? Black Eyed Peas maybe? It's a musical group, not a soup. What do you smell of? What do you smell when you think of happiness? Bacon? We're all agreed on that one, so let's move on. Even vegetarians are like, it smells amazing. What do you taste? What do you feel? Picture yourself in your state of happiness and hold on to it because we're going to come back to it. As we learn from Matthew 5, 1 through 12, we are going to take a look at the following. We're going to look at the description of the text, the command of the text, the fulfillment of the text, the performance of the text, and finally the promise of the text. So first, the description. George Hunsinger argues Jesus is speaking here in a way that describes the true nature of reality or God's kingdom. This description applies to the current state of the world, but also applies to the world to come. Jesus is teaching his audience a new way of understanding what it means to be blessed in this life in light of where this world is ultimately headed, God's final judgment. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer notes, Jesus' message here would have been a message 
to those listening because he makes claims that are completely opposite to widespread understandings of God, his kingdom, and humanity. Jesus calls his disciples blessed and proclaims that Israel's heritage, the kingdom of heaven, belongs to them. Jesus addresses the sins that are in direct opposition of the characteristics of those whom Jesus declares blessed. The poor in spirit expose the sin of pride. The mourners mourn because of affronts to God and His kingdom. Thus they expose the sin of disobeying God. The meek uncover the sin of individuality and selfishness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness lay bare the deceit of those who perpetrate injustice. The merciful expose the hateful wrath of the merciless. The pure in heart shine a light on the impure hearts of others. The peacemakers expose the evil in their hearts of those who would seek to bring division. Finally, those persecuted for righteousness uncover the fear of those who would abandon their convictions for their own advancement. In contrast, this passage presents a description of what faithful obedience to God looks like. Though they make factual statements before they express commands, those who seek to follow Christ must recognize the ways in which God is calling for obedience that lives out the concepts presented in Matthew 5, 1-12. Which leads us to the command of the text. Though these teachings are descriptive in nature, they are accompanied by commands for those who would seek to live in participation with God's kingdom. Though Jesus is not introducing a new law, he is describing and modeling what it looks like to embody the law of God. These are the radical ways in which humanity should live as people relate to one another. They should conform to the will of God in their life. Of course, Jesus is speaking of both the now and the not yet kingdom of God. Ulrich Luz writes, Divine justice not only is above time and space, but also reaches into time and space. Therefore, a human response must recognize that Jesus is describing the nature of reality both now and forever. This response should include a radical shift of the heart, soul, mind, and strength because the truths presented here in the Beatitudes are fundamentally opposed to the default nature of a sinful humanity. Jesus declares blessing upon the poor in spirit, the meek, and the peacemakers And our society alone elevates the proud, the independent, and those who conquer. We must realize how this text uproots some of the core premises that form our culture. This text speaks against the ways of a broken humanity by proclaiming the ways of God that contain a deeper truth and are in direct opposition to those of sinful humanity. Which leads to the fulfillment the text. Now, like all of God's commands, Jesus serves as the perfect fulfillment of them. Hunsinger writes again, Jesus is the secret center of the Beatitudes as a whole and therefore of each one in particular. He is finally their real subject matter and in them he points to his own person. The Beatitudes are thus best understood as the self-interpretation of Jesus Each of these characteristics Jesus lists in the text are inextricably linked 
to his activity. In his perfection, Jesus is the pure unification of character and activity. He is poor in spirit as he empties himself to take on the form of human likeness. He mourns as the chief mourner over sin that plagues the world. Jesus embodies the essence of meekness because he submitted himself without sin to the will of God, to God's harsh and dreadful love, and he did so for our sakes and in our place. Not only does Jesus desire righteousness more than any other, he maintains righteousness through his actions and offers his righteousness to humanity through his grace. Jesus is the human expression of God's mercy. He sympathizes in response to our distress. Where the rest of humanity is marred by sin, Jesus is the only one who is pure in heart. As part of the Holy Trinity, Jesus experiences unfiltered intimacy with God. Ephesians 2 declares Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker since he has destroyed walls of division which made former enemies into a unified humanity. And Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate expression of persecution because of righteousness. He also serves as the first among those martyrs who would seek to offer their lives on behalf of God's truth. Through God's revealed word, we see Jesus carry out these beatitudes without flaw in his life and ultimately his death resurrection. So the performance of the text. Even though Jesus fulfills these commands and obeying them is no longer a question of salvation for those who have received God's grace, we must come to see that obeying them in this life leads to, as it repeatedly says, blessing, a transcendent happiness. I was talking with someone earlier this week and reflecting on how one of the ways you know you are walking in step with Jesus is when you see Scripture come to life before your very eyes. These moments are moments where Scripture is performed right in our midst. It's lived out. And we see the Holy Text come to life before us and we're captivated. A few years ago, I was part of a team launched by this church to visit an orphanage in Haiti as we served alongside some absolutely remarkable heroes of the faith, we had the privilege of attending a worship service on the Sunday we were in Haiti. Many of the people there had suffered a great deal in life because of extreme poverty, natural disaster, and spiritual darkness. Many in attendance were poor. All had mourned. Many were meek, obeying God's call to live in harsh conditions, Many in the church hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Many were merciful. Though none had totally pure hearts, there were many with hearts more pure than mine. Many had brought peace to this region. Some had even been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And there were some who had received unjust hate from others on account of their faith in Christ. The congregation in that worship service in Haiti was a coming together of many of the people described in Matthew 5, 1-12. As the worship service began, I immediately noticed the passion with which these people sang. It was inspiring. It was overwhelming. They knew, without a shadow of a doubt, that they were in the presence of their King. 
And they sang with a sense of transcendent happiness. The passion with which they sang out to Jesus revealed a happiness or joy that I have never seen from churches in more prosperous regions of the world. The enthusiasm in the room almost overwhelmed me as they sang the final verse in Phil Wickham's song, Beautiful. They sang with passion and energy and a brokenness the following lyric. When we arrive at eternity's shore where death is just a memory and tears are no more, we'll enter in as the wedding bells ring. Your bride will come together and we'll sing the beautiful. They were singing out to God Himself. They were filled with blessing or happiness as they experienced God in their midst. And they sang with a deep hope for the day when Christ will return and death will be a memory and tears will be no more. Which leads us to the promise of the text. And here's what we have in the promise of the text. Here lies the promise that changes everything. And that is this. True happiness is shaped by the recognition of who God is and what He is doing. True happiness is shaped by the recognition of who God is and what He is doing. We all suffer the consequences of sin. The pervasive brokenness found throughout creation which is caused by sin will someday be made whole. The poor in spirit will receive the kingdom of heaven. The meek, not the proud, will inherit the earth. Those who have a deep longing for righteousness will receive their fill as creation will be filled with God's righteousness. Where humanity has historically assumed happiness was experienced by the proud, the powerful, and the prosperous, Jesus invites those with ears to listen to live a life among the poor, the powerless, and the pure in heart. So think of your concept of happiness that we discussed earlier. As you recall that image, that setting, that context, does it mirror Jesus' description of blessedness? Or does it mirror something else? I know for me, that's, that's something I need to work on and think about and pray through. The descriptions and commands in the text deal with the now and not yet kingdom of God. The more we find ourselves walking in step with our King, the more we will come to embody the way of the Beatitudes and experience heaven here on earth, just as Jesus prayed later in this sermon. As we align our hearts with His, we will become poor in spirit. We will mourn for the brokenness of this world. We will desire a meek posture with our lives as we live in faithful obedience to our King. As our lives are finely tuned to harmonize with the divine melody of the cosmos, we will hunger deeply and ache with a thirst for righteousness, justice. We will extend mercy to others because we ourselves have been offered everlasting mercy. Our hearts will be constantly renewed by the Holy Spirit as they undergo a refining process filtering out that which is impure. We will find ourselves to be passionate agents of peace as we begin to bear the Spirit and image of our Father in Heaven. We will face persecution on behalf of righteousness because we know that the unfolding narrative of the cosmos 
culminates with God restoring unbridled justice to every far-reaching corner of the universe. We will experience blessing when people revile us and persecute us and utter all kinds of evil against us falsely on Jesus' account. We must rejoice and be glad, for our reward is great in heaven. These are the promises we find in God's Word this morning. True happiness is shaped by the recognition of who God is and what He is doing. This is the promise that changes everything, and may it shape our lives in this day today. Amen. Somebody pray for us.